So Acts 27, the background. The Jews accused Paul of insurrection and blasphemy. And he's in the court of the Roman procurator Felix. And Paul ably defends himself against these false charges. But Felix lets Paul languish in prison to appease the Jewish leaders. Two years later, Porcus Festus succeeds Felix as procurator of Judea. Festus also tries Paul and wanting to please the Jews, suggests that Paul is taken from the safety of Roman Caesarea to stand trial in Jerusalem. Paul, fearing another attempt on his life, claims his right as a Roman citizen to be tried by Caesar in Rome. Festus says, Acts 25, 12, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And so begins Paul's journey to Rome, which is documented in Acts 27 and in the first half of Acts 28. And it's a long way to Rome. And they start with a sea voyage. It's, it, verse 1 takes place in probably August AD 59 when it was decided we should sail for Italy. So who are the we travelling to Rome? Well, there's Paul, who's a prisoner, as it says in verse 1. And there's other prisoners that the Romans have in their charge. We don't know who or how many. There's the centurion Julius of the Augustan or Imperial Regiment. Plus there's some other soldiers with him. They're mentioned in verses 31 and 32. There's Aristarchus. Aristarchus is a Jew from Thessalonica in Macedonia. And we've seen Aristarchus mentioned before. He's there in Acts 19, 20, 29, where he's in Ephesus, where he's grabbed by the mob um, when they're rioting. And he's also mentioned in Colossians and Philemon, which were written after Paul gets to Rome. Also travelling here is Luke. He's the author of Acts of the Apostles. And he says in verse 2, we boarded a ship. And indeed, by reading through the rest of uh, the book of Acts, we can see that Luke is with Paul all the way through to Rome. And, he's mentioned, and it's mentioned again in Acts 28, 16. And there's also some sailors on the two different ships that Paul uh, travels on and there's various other passengers so that's the people who are on the ships that are traveling now if we look at the slides i've tried to bring out some good illustrations of where they're going so uh, this is the full journey rome's up at the top there on the left and caesarea's down at the bottom right and they've got a traverse up the coast of judea syria across uh, turkey underneath Greece, across to Sicily, and up the west coast of, uh, of Italy to Rome. It's a long journey. The first day, they sail from Caesarea to Sidon, and it's about 69 miles away, a decent day's sailing. And verse 3 says that the centurion trusts Paul enough, that he ex and he expresses his kindness to him in allowing Paul to meet some Christians 
in Sidon. Julius was probably aware that Paul had been a model prisoner in Caesarea and that the Roman procurator Felix had sent for Paul frequently and had discussions with him. And as it's recorded in Acts 24, 26, the next procurator Festus and King Herod Agrippa II had agreed that if Paul had not appealed to Caesar, he could have been freed. So the next day from Sidon, uh, they sail to Myra. Myra's in Turkey. It's um, sort of a quarter of the way over. And if we go to the next slide, um, we can see here that the, the hop from Caesarea to Sidon, and then they go northwards up under Cilicia and across the coast of Pamphylia. And they had trouble along the way. They were tacking, sailing backwards and forwards, uh, at more or less at right angles, at 45 degrees to the direction of the wind. The wind was against them. They needed to go west uh, along the bottom of Pamphylia, and, uh, but the wind, they couldn't sail directly into the wind. And uh, so they had difficulty. So instead of it taking them six days, it takes them almost two weeks to make this journey. And then there's a change of ship. In verse uh, six, we see that the, the centurion changes the ship they're sailing on. This is because the original ship, if we just go back one, sorry. The original ship is from Adramitium, which is up on the uh, northwest of Turkey there. So that ship is plying the coasts up and down the Turkish coasts, down to Jerusalem, Caesarea, down to Caesarea, maybe a bit further on. And they need to travel west to Italy. So they get off the ship at Myra and they find another ship. And so they change ship. And it's quite a large ship, this, this next ship. It's, uh, it, it's going to carry, it tells us, in verse 37, 276 people. It's not primarily a passenger ship. It's a cargo ship transporting Egyptian grain from the port of Alexandria to feed the masses in Rome. These ships would carry a minimum of 70 tonnes, possibly some of them up to 400 tonnes of grain. Of grain. Rome received about 140,000 tonnes of grain a year from Egypt and about four grain ships a day docked in the ports of Rome between the months of June through to September. And this ship would have a large mast with a large sail and two paddle-like rudders at the rear. Uh, a man called Lucian of Samosata, who lived about 100 years after Paul, describes a Roman grain ship as 180 feet long. Well, that's probably from the back. It's probably the whole length of this auditorium uh, and been over 45 feet wide. So that's 55 metres one way, 13 metres another, and about 44 feet deep. So it's, it's at least as big as the whole of this auditorium. And it's going to weigh about 1,200 tonnes. 
So this is a big ship. And they make slow progress to Crete, verses 6 to 8 tell us. And if you look on the map, you can see, um, you know, they're, they're leaving Myra about the 1st of September, AD 59. And they make very slow progress westward to Crete. They sailed slowly, it says, verse 7, many days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed. So they couldn't hold their intended course of staying north of the island of Crete while they were heading west. So rather they had to go south of Crete and moving along the west, moving westwards along the coast with difficulty, they came to a place called Fair Havens. And you see again, now I just hand drew that uh, course in on the, the map of Crete there. They're going backwards and forwards, trying to get upwind. Those large ships with that one uh, big mainsail couldn't sail directly into the wind like modern sailing ships can. So they had to go backwards and forwards, crisscrossing. That's a lot more distance to cover, and it takes a corresponding increase in the amount of time for the journey. And they came to this place on sort of like the middle of the bottom of Crete called Fair Havens, not far from the city of Lycia. And then they've got a dilemma. There's a dilemma. It says, verse 9, much time had been lost. It was now after the feast. The feast being Yom Kippur. That's the, the Day of Atonement. And in AD 59, that was on the 5th of October. So it's, so that Luke is telling us it's after the 5th of October. And sailing was dangerous late in the year. The Roman writer, Vegetius, states that navigation in the open sea, this is in the Mediterranean, Mare Nostrum as the Romans called it, fell off after the 14th of September. So it's much reduced. And it came to a complete halt after the 11th of November and didn't resume to the following year in February or March. But the problem that the passengers on this ship and the, the, the ship's crew have and the soldiers is that Fairhavens is not a good harbour regarding the winter winds. Verse 12. So there's a discussion about what to do next. And the dilemma is whether to stay put in a poor harbour for the whole of the winter or press on for what might be just another half day at sea. From Fairhavens to Phoenix, it's about 40 odd miles across there. Normally a ship like that would be able to do 60, 70 miles a day. So it's less than a day's sailing. But, but Paul, he's a seasoned traveler He's crisscrossed the Mediterranean multiple times, covering well over 3,000 miles. There's at least 17 voyages mentioned in the book of Acts. 
And Paul, who had written two Corinthians three years previous to this uh, voyage, states, as I read at the beginning of the service, that he'd been shipwrecked three times already and had spent a day and night in the sea. Now, we, we don't know when these other shipwrecks happened. They're not recorded for us by Luke. Um, but it's probably in the times before his first missionary journey. So Paul knew the difficulties of autumn voyages at sea. And he says in verse 10 that it would be a disaster to the ship, the cargo and their own lives to push ahead. However, the ship's pilot and owner wanted to sail the additional 45 miles west along the coast of Crete to winter in the better port of Phoenix. Perhaps they said, it's only half a day's sailing. We'll easily get there. And verse 12, the majority of the ship's complement, including the centurion, decided to sail on to this harbour of Phoenix and winter there. Paul, of course, had no choice since he was a prisoner in the centurion's custody. So that was their dilemma. And it seems like there was maybe some kind of vote because the majority of the ship's complemented of ship's complement decided to sail on. So they sail on. And in verse 13, it says, when a gentle southern wind blew, they set out hugging the coast. But verse 14, very quickly, a hurricane force wind, a tempest, starts to blow from the northeast and the ship's caught in it. And, so, and the ship cannot go into the wind and they can't go west. So they have to ride the wind southwest and they're driven in a southwesterly direction past that small island of Corda. Pretty soon their position becomes desperate. They can hardly get the lifeboat on board. And I don't know if you know, but sailing directly downwind, it's called a run, is the least stable point of sailing. It's much more stable to sail across the wind than it is to sail directly downwind. And that's the position this boat is in straight away. And in verse 17, it says the ship is in danger of splitting apart. So they put ropes around it. Uh, and they're moving at such a speed in the southwest direction, back towards the coast of Africa, that they fear getting into the sandbanks and shallows off North Tunisia. Now their grain ship is a large ship and it's got a deep draft. It needs plenty of deep water beneath it to keep it afloat. So they take the sail down and they lower the sea anchor to try and slow them down while the ship's been driven headlong by the power of the wind. They don't want to wind up suddenly um, on the north coast of Africa. So they try and move at a much slower speed. Verse 18, the ship takes a violent battering and they begin to start to throw the 100 tonnes of grain overboard. Now that wouldn't be a quick nor an easy job. But their aim is to lighten the ship. 
The ship's rising and falling in the heaving sea. And it's this rising and the falling back violently that is risking the ship coming apart. The, when the ship comes down, whump, uh, as it go, rides down the, the swell, uh, that's when it gets a big bash and it's nearly splitting the ship, all the, making all the, the, uh, the wood planks of the ship perhaps uh, come apart. And that's why the ropes are put round the ship to hold it in a bit like a corset. Now, if the ship is lighter, it won't be hammered down so hard in the swell. So that's a reason why they're throwing the grain overboard to make the ship lighter so that it might float nearer the top and not be whacked down. And from verse 40, it's actually obvious that about this time, they tied the two paddle rudders together. And the next day, verse 19, it says, we, that's Luke and Paul and Aristarchus, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Paul and Luke, etc., are also helping throw the ship's furniture and all the non-essential items overboard. The ship must have been on the very point of breaking. And so starts two weeks of sheer terror for 276 souls. Who's ever been on a roller coaster? Eh? I'm sure some of the you younger people have. Uh, you can tough it out, can't you? You can just grit your teeth and hang on for two minutes and get over. Get over with it. Jeff Bezos, this last week, he had 10 minutes and 10 seconds, perhaps, of sheer terror as he went up 60 miles and back down again. Well, Paul and these 275 others have over 20,000 minutes of terror on that ship for two weeks in this raging tempest. They're hanging on to the ship, up and down on the waves, again and again and again, seemingly without end. The ship's threatening to be split apart. And what they went through that first night must have been terrible. And then the next day, but they had to repeat it over and over and over again. It says, verse 20, on the third day, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Is that Luke speaking for the whole ship? Or is it Luke speaking for himself and Aristarchus and Paul? They've been through terror, exhaustion. They've got no adrenaline left. There's the constant being thrown about by the ship's movement, by the wind and the waves. Verse 20, the storm clouds hide the sun and stars for many days. They don't know where they are. They can't navigate. They haven't a clue where they are or indeed which direction they're traveling in. And the storm continues to rage. And it says, and we gave up all hope of surviving the, the voyage. It must have been a much worse time than the three previous times Paul was shipwrecked, the experience on that ship. So let's look at Paul, the apostle of God. 
There's a, a change in Paul's status in this chapter. In, uh, in verse 1, he's a prisoner. And yes, he's granted the privilege of meeting friends on the stopover. But he's just one of several prisoners on the way to be judged in Rome. In verse 9 to 12, Paul's first set of advice to the group uh, on the ship is ignored. Now, he's not prophesying there. He's just speaking as a very experienced traveller who's been shipwrecked three times before. But if you're there, who would you take advice from? A preacher in chains or experienced seamen? Well, you'd probably take the advice of the experienced seamen. They're risking their lives too. And so they, they ignore Paul's advice. But Paul is not just a passive passenger. And in the two weeks that the ship has been battered by the storm, Paul's character is increasingly displayed to all on board. Uh, as Paul would write about a year later to the Ephesians, when he is in Rome, he writes in Ephesians 5.16, he says, Don't be fools, be wise. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I'm sure Paul took the opportunity on this ship in this storm. And then about seven years after this incident, he writes in 2 Timothy 4, 5, he says to Timothy, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul was an apostle personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure that Paul fulfilled his ministry on this ship. What a godly man does sets an example that's not easily overlooked. What was Paul doing during these 14 days? Well, we know from verse 19 that he took an active part in the work to make the ship as safe as possible because it was his hands with the others that threw the ship's tackle overboard. But we can also look at what Paul did and wrote before this episode to get an insight into what he would be doing now on the ship in the storm with them all facing certain death. I'm sure uh, Acts 16, Paul in Philippi might teach us something about what Paul did on this ship. Because in Philippi, after being severely flogged at midnight, being in prison, Paul prayed and sang hymns to God loudly enough for all the other prisoners to hear. And I'm sure that Paul and Luke and Aristarchus did the same during this terrible voyage and the passengers heard. Perhaps Paul recited Psalm 46 or Psalm 61. Look them up. God is his refuge and strength. Then perhaps, as Paul writes 18 months after uh, this incident, when he writes to the Philippians from Rome, Philippians 1.12, he says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel 
so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I'm sure that Paul, whether he was literally chained on the boat as a prisoner or not, still made it known that he was there as a prisoner for Christ. Indeed, Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than the rest, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And he exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy, doesn't he? Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Well, I'm sure that on this boat, with nearly 300 souls facing imminent death, that was the season. And I'm certain that Paul preached the gospel to them. And if he did, what did he say to the crew and passengers? Well, Paul preached, he preached Jesus. They were certainly facing imminent, certain death. And he would speak to them about the fact of immediate personal judgment upon death by the judge that God has appointed, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He would preach about sin, our complete failure to live the moral life God demands, a life that would please God himself. So Paul preached that we are all guilty sinners and that we, about, that we guilty sinners are about to be confronted by the righteousness of a holy God. And there was only one thing you could possibly do. We need to repent. And Paul preaches Christ's death in our place. He would have preached about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his life and ministry, about his death on the cross and about his physical bodily resurrection on the third day, which guarantees that those who have faith in him are forgiven. Paul would preach that though they may never again experience peace in the world, that they could actually have peace with God. Peace with the God they were about to face as judge by repentance from sin. Paul knew the Old Testament. Turn from your evil ways. Turn from your sin. Why will you die? And Paul would have preached that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he preached a changed life for all those who truly believe. Paul preached the resurrection of all the dead with the dead in Christ rising to everlasting life. But a resurrection to everlasting punishment for all others. Paul preached all these things with absolute confidence because he knew Christ for himself. Do you? Do you know these things with absolute confidence because you know Christ for yourself? And Paul wouldn't have just preached. He would have prayed. I'm sure, I'm sure he prayed fervently day and night, publicly out loud and privately. 
prayers of praise and worship to a sovereign God who rules the universe and indeed the smallest circumstances of our lives. Prayers of submission to his holy will. Prayers about his own God-set purpose of standing before Caesar in Rome and praying that since the Lord God had declared that this would happen, it would happen despite every outward indication to the contrary while they were on that ship. Paul would have prayed for the safety of his immediate companions, Luke and Aristarchus. I'm sure he would have prayed for the centurion, Julius and the other soldiers. He would have prayed for the sailors and all that were on board and feeling daily the burden of the churches, I'm sure he prayed for the Christian churches. I'm sure that he would have read whatever scriptures he had with him, with him and he would have recited from heart much of what he knew and all this in full view of everybody else. If we had, what, six times the number of people in this space that we have now, what privacy are you going to have? Almost none. 276 people on a grain transporting ship. Very little privacy, especially during times of danger. And Paul would have preached and prayed and worshipped in full view of everybody else. How would I hold up in such a situation? How would you hold up? How would your faith hold up? What example would I set in such a situation? What example would you set? Whatever a godly man does sets an example. And after 14 days of Paul's example, they listened to him. Paul, the apostle of God. And later on, they did what he said. So Paul would have prayed for physical deliverance as well as the, for the souls of the men. And the sovereign Lord heard him and answered him by sending his angel with a message of hope. And Paul's consistent actions on that ship was the gateway that allowed him to speak about the angel's message from God. And his actions had earned him the right to address all on board authoritatively. And the courage that God gave Paul was then shared with the whole ship's company. Verse 21, you're here in this peril, says Paul, because of listening to bad advice. Now listen to good advice. And he relays God's message to Paul, his apostle. He says, God, whose I am, to whom I belong. That's a, that's a statement in itself, isn't it? Are you aware that you belong to God as a precious and treasured possession? Do others know this about you? Paul goes on to say, God whom I serve. Do I serve God? Or do, do I only pay him lip, lip service? 
Is that the same for you? But Paul served God and all those on board that ship knew that was to true. And God said to Paul, do not be afraid, Paul. Of course Paul was afraid. And God comforts him and says to him, do not be afraid. You must stand trial before Caesar. God's purposes promised beforehand would be fulfilled despite everything looking completely against it happening. And then God says something to Paul. He says he's graciously given Paul the lives of all sailing on the ship with him. 276 people. The way it's put in the verse sounds like that Paul has been entreating God on their behalf. And God is saying, I have heard you, Paul, and I am giving you that for which you have prayed. And he has given it to Paul as a sign of the truth of his message and his goodness to others for Christians' sake. Paul has been granted the lives of those for whom he has been praying. We've all heard of collateral damage. Seems to happen in every war zone all the time. Well, this might be called or termed adjacent blessing. These men were blessed because they were on the same ship as Paul. Others on the ship to the left and right didn't have the Apostle Paul on board with them. Maybe they all drowned. But Paul had interceded for this men. So Paul says, you men take courage. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. And yes, we will run aground on some island, not the mainland. And we'll run aground and we'll not merely dock. All these details come exactly true, proving everything that Paul had said. It's amazing, isn't it? As you think about this passage, what's more real to you? Your present circumstances or God's promises in his word? Paul has complete confidence in God and he communicates that to all on board. Paul, in the two weeks, had given them hope of a spiritual salvation and now of a physical salvation too. So God graciously preserves all their lives. And we look at the last few hours of the ship in verses 27 to 40. So on the 14th night, something changes. The sailors sense they're near land. Had they heard the, the crashing of breakers on a shore? They let down the line, measure the depth of the water beneath them. And sure enough, it's quickly getting shallower. So to prevent the ship being dashed to pieces on any rocks, they drop four anchors to stop the ship moving, to hold it fast in the sea. And they all pray that the night would end soon. Now, some sailors, verse 30, want to make a break for it in the lifeboat. Paul sees this and he warns the centurion in verse 31, we need those sailors if we are to survive. And the centurion, for one, now believes what Paul has to say. 
And so verse 32, the soldiers are ordered to cut the empty lifeboat free, trapping the sailors on board the ship. The sailors have proven themselves false while Paul is busy proving himself true. And as dawn approaches, Paul urges all on board to eat and gather their strength. He reassures them, again, not only that they would survive, but not even one hair on their head would be lost. They're not going to suffer amputated legs or anything like that in the, in the shipwreck. He shows them, verse 35, his faith in God and, his pr and that God's promise of safety is undiminished. And he shows them this by giving thanks to God on that ship for the bread in front of him and eating it. And this simple, practical example works. And all on board eat. Many are now listening to and obeying what Paul, the apostle of God, says to them. Verse 38, they lighten the ship one last time so that it will float high over any rocks and sandbanks. And in, and in verse 39, with the daylight coming, they can see the sandy beach on the shore and they cut the anchors, untie the rudders. They probably did the rudders first. They put the front sail up, cut the, the anchors and do a run in to the beach. These actions, by the way, with the sails and the anchors, all required the sailors' skill and experience. That's why Paul said, unless these men stay, we're all going to die. But, there's, but then comes the shipwreck. As they head for the beach, the ship gets stuck in a sandbar and the back end of the ship is pounded by the surf and starts breaking apart with all the water flooding in. Now the soldiers didn't want the prisoners to escape. They were under the most severe vows and censure if they let prisoners escape. So they planned to kill them while they were still on the boat. But because Julius the Centurion wants to spare Paul's life, he stops the soldiers from carrying out that plan. And he orders all of them who could swim to swim to the shore and the rest, you know, grab whatever you can, any part of the ship that will float and get to the shore that way. Verse 44, as God promised all 276, make it off the stricken ship to the safety of the beach. I wonder how many believed the gospel that Paul preached. I wonder how many souls made it to the safety found in Christ alone. We're not told. But tonight, just like the people on this ship, we face certain death and then the judgment. Maybe it's not as imminent as it was for them while they were on that ship in that storm. Are we going to face that certain judgment alone? Or are we going to put our faith in the saviour of men and women and boys and girls? So God had graciously, graciously given Paul the lives of all who sailed with him. And there's at least five times when life could have been lost, either during the 13 days of the storm, 
when the soldiers attempted to escape in the lifeboat, everybody else's life would have been forfeit. When the soldiers killed the prisoners, when the ship foundered and was broken up by the surf, imagine being in the back end of the ship as it gets smashed to pieces, or when the crew and passengers left the ship and swam through the waves to the safety of the shore. In all this, we see that God is faithful and can be trusted in everything. He can be trusted in the hard things, the uncertain things, even through death. Does your experience of God's faithfulness to you in the past enable you to trust him for all the future things? May that be so. And may we know our God well and personally. He is faithful.